0: Good morning. Can we just start out with a nice, deep, good cleansing breath? Do we know what a cleansing breath is? A good, loud enough when it comes out that somebody next to you can hear it. Let's do that because I need that to get started. So, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So we have these two weeks together before Angel starts preaching regularly. And it was suggested by several people that this is probably a time where some rest is needed. Um, The search committee and the church council have worked really hard. They need some rest. If I'm not mistaken, several of our small groups are on break. Is that right? Taking a break right now? Um, And as I thought about rest and about what part of Scripture might seem right to share, I kept coming back to Psalm 23. So if you saw in your bulletin, actually, our title for our sermon today is that we are going to spend a fortnight with the good shepherd. Now, that is not fortnight minus the G, as in the game. Sorry for the kids that got stuck here, that were promised that adults aren't that boring. We're not talking about fortnight, but a fortnight, as in two weeks. So I'm going to be sharing this week. And next week again, Um, and so today we're going to look at the first three verses of Psalm 23. Next week we will look at the last three verses. And I would just invite you to think of this as a time, as this set of two weeks where you're being called into a place of rest. Um, Now we will get to verse by verse, uh, looking at Psalm 23 momentarily. But I'm curious about what your reaction is when I invite you to think about prioritizing rest for the next couple of weeks. For some of you, you are instantly agreeable. You think that that sounds great, right? But others, there might be a knee-jerk, anxious reaction. You might think things like, but what might happen if I rest? What balls are going to get dropped? What competitor is going to pass me by? Or what horrible thing might befall me or my family if I stop being alert and knowing what's going on at every single minute? Um, Our culture and our tendency, as Angel noted last week, is tending toward rugged individualism, where it means we often prefer not to need anybody's help, we esteem people who know how to dig deep and get things done, and we are proud of being busy. For many of us, we so self-identify with our jam-packed calendars that we start to become itchy if someone starts to suggest that we should rest. Um, And I actually know a thing or two about humans resisting rest. You see, as a parent to four small children, I spend my hours doing a lot of different things for them. I grocery shop so that we have food. I do their laundry. I make their doctor's appointments. I take them shoe shopping. Um, But there is one task as a parent that I am pretty sure I have invested more time in than any other. So those of you here with kids, any guess what that activity might be? Getting them to sleep. Um, So popular blogger Glennon Doyle had me in stitches. Actually, I remember like kind of almost wheezing and tears running down my face reading about her talking about um, bedtime in their house and calling it a game of bedtime whack-a-mole. So if you've ever tried to bed down multiple children, not only is it work on one front, but it is like a bedtime whack-a-mole. You probably totally get that. Um, And a favorite comedian of mine, Jim Gaffigan, talks about bedtime in his home with five kids like this. He says, bedtime in our home is like a crisis. They act like they have never been to sleep before. <laughs> Bed? What's that? No, I don't want to do that. Then it becomes some sort of hostage negotiation, but in reverse. Look, if you stay in there, I will give you whatever you want. I will meet your demands. You want a helicopter to Cuba? Anything. Just stay in there. <laughs> now, my kids outlast me all the time. I lie down with them, and by the time we've gotten through bedtime prayers, wondered about whether our cats wished they had underwear, discussed what they want to do for their birthday years from now, and scratched every itchy spot, sung every bedtime song, I am just as likely to have dozed off as they are. And with three older kids, I did enjoy a little handful of years there without any kids taking naps. So for that short season, this bedtime chaos was only for the nighttime hours. But with a baby in the family again, I often find myself trying to get Junia to sleep for an afternoon nap, all the while thinking, what? is wrong with you. Any adult I know would be so happy to close their eyes and go to sleep right this minute. Um, So I actually did the math. In my modest estimation of spending 90 minutes a day for the past 10 and a half years trying to get small people to sleep, that adds up to 5,752 hours of my life. That is 239 days almost an entire year out of the past ten and a half years trying to get little people to go to sleep. Um, But just last night, a story popped up on my Facebook feed wherein researchers have actually found that during the first year of a child's life, parents spend as much as five hours a day to get their baby to sleep. So that's 82 days of the first year. For me, my measly 6,000 hours is a conservative figure. So even so, according to author Malcolm Gladwell, who says that in 10,000 hours you become an expert at anything, I am more than halfway to that expert status. And I promise if I ever reach expert status and figure it out, I will give away that secret freely. Um, But back to our scripture, back to Psalm 23. Let's read those three verses again, the three first ones that we're focusing on, and savor them verse by verse. We're going to pick the bones for every good morsel of truth and goodness that we can consume as we dwell upon um, this virtue of rest. And I think what we're going to find is that we can rest when we receive and we walk in the truth of what psalm, this psalm says God is like. Um, If this has to fit in an outline with three parts, then I would be forced to say that we will discover in this first first half of Psalm 23 that, one, we can rest because the Good Shepherd gives us security and protection. Two, that we can rest because the Good Shepherd is willing to keep bringing us back to our place of refreshment. And three, we can rest because we know that God's presence and God's reputation go ahead of us into unfamiliar places. So these first three verses again, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. One quick quick disclaimer, Um, this was something I gave an attempt to last month when I preached and I totally stumbled over these words, but in light of Angel's sermon last week, I'm trying to talk about God as they, as often as I can. So as I fumble through this new approach with pronouns, excuse me if I do that, even though uh, this psalm talks about he, a shepherd, um, there'll be some he's, but if you hear some they's, don't be too thrown off. Um, I approach this passage in one of my very favorite ways, and that's to look at the language that it was originally written in and try to understand more of the message by sensing what the author, this lyricist, was trying to tell us in his own native tongue. First, it's widely accepted that David's, that's David the shepherd boy, David who killed Goliath, King David, um, David the musician who who soothed King Saul, um, this is the David who wrote the psalm. And beside the fact that many other psalms are attributed to him, the stories, the fact that this is about a shepherd and he had that experience suggests that this is a psalm that is quintessentially David. Um, Has anyone here memorized the scripture as a kid? I think I did. Other than John 3.16, it might be one of the most commonly recognized portions of the Bible. Even so, sometimes that familiarity means that we miss things. And one of the things that I overlooked that I noticed right away is the third word in. I was stopped in my tracks right away when I tried to slow down and read this. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. Not just that the Lord is the shepherd, or the Lord is a shepherd, but my shepherd. From the get-go... Belongingness is front and center. The psalmist knows that he belongs to the Lord. And this Hebrew word for shepherd means to feed, to tend, and to be a friend to. This is not an obligatory relationship. This is not a resentful meeting of needs. David knows that God, his shepherd, actually cares for the sheep. And he knows and revels in the fact that God is not just a provider, but also a companion. Now, as for this phrase, I shall not want... I realize in retrospect that I have some pretty sad baggage attached to this verse because I had always assumed as a child and as a growing up person that I shall not want was a commandment concerning having right desires. It led me to scrupulosity of fearing that I might be wanting the wrong thing, that that might displease God, and that I would end up like a deadbeat sheep wandering off somewhere. I thought that it meant be satisfied in God or else. No wonder I thought this way. Even as I tried to read some other commentaries on this passage this week, I kept coming across commentary after commentary that chastises stupid sheep, stupid humans for not having the right desires. We think of want as being something in comparison to need. You know, we have needs, but then we have wants. They're just these extra things. But this word translated as want means it's actually the Hebrew word haser. It doesn't have anything to do with human desires. If we unpack this Hebrew word haser, what it means is to lack in something that will cause failure. So I shall not want means I shall not lack in anything that might cause me failure. It means that my good shepherd is taking responsibility for making sure that I will never lack in anything that I need. Now we swing back around to that phrase that I hinted at in the intro, he makes us lie down in green pastures. Again, we could misunderstand and think that God is forcefully evoking power upon the sheep. But the phrase, make me lie down, comes from a single word, robots. Robots means that the one that is lying down is crouched down in a resting position. It is the kind of position that one gets in when there is no fear of predators and no fear of starvation. I did have something to learn from an actual shepherd on this point. There's an author, Philip Keller, who wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Um, While I cannot vouch for the entirety of the book, um, I did find it it has a little bit of those like, oh, you dumb sheep. God doesn't like you being so dumb. Um, But there were some good parts in it. um, These insights were particularly helpful for this making me lie down in green pastures. So Philip Keller observed during his time as a caretaker of sheep that there were four conditions that must be met in order for a sheep to lie down and rest in these green pastures. And they all start with an F, so that makes it a little easy to remember. Um, First, the sheep needed to be free of fear. They needed to know that predators were not there, that predators were not going to be able to hurt them. Um, Second, they need to be free of what he calls friction, There couldn't be a sense of unrest among the flock. There couldn't be a sense within their relationships between one another that um, one bullying or abusive sheep could be harming the other ones. Um, The third is that the sheep must be free of what Keller calls flies, little pests, little things that bother and um, annoy the sheep. And the last, a caring shepherd would have to make sure that they were free of famine that they didn't have to worry about whether there was going to be enough food for their needs to be met. And this is where that lying down in green pastures comes into play. And especially in the time and place that David was living and writing this psalm, the lush green fields that we might picture would not have been easy to come by. The landscape was much more desert-like, so having ample grass for sheep to feed on meant that a thoughtful and a devoted shepherd had led the sheep to a place that might have been hard-sought. It might have even required the shepherd to till and to plant, to remove rocks, and create a space where the sheep would have more than enough to eat. And in that place where that has happened, this is the kind of rest that we can enjoy as a sheep of the good shepherd. Rest that knows that divine shepherding is at work to provide us with the kind of security that we need. Um, if you are a note-taker, I'd simply phrase it as this, point one. We can rest because the good shepherd gives us security and provision. So let's move on to the second half of that second verse. After a spell in some green pastures, we are told that the shepherd of this psalm leads me beside still waters. Again, Without much deep thought, this phrase has always had me thinking of a nice picnic by a lake or maybe reading a book by the pool under an umbrella. I mean, who doesn't like that nice lakeside picnic or um, taking a break in that way? And while I agree it's nice, I wholeheartedly recommend you to get by water and get some rest. The reason that the sheep of this psalm need to be led to still waters is for the purpose of satisfying their thirst. Again, from shepherd and author Philip Keller, Sheep are too fearful of moving water, and in fact, it's not uncommon in this desert landscape to have flash floods that could turn deadly, so a ravine could turn into a death trap for a flock of sheep. So sheep have this instinct to know that for a safe drink, it has to come from still waters. And David esteems his good shepherd for consistently leading the flock to a place where they can safely drink. In a society with ample, clean water, we take for granted how utterly important water is for the sustenance of our lives. While we might have the occasional moment that we would describe as dying of thirst, um, in general, most of us suffer no more than a headache or, at worst, maybe a trip to the emergency room for fluids if our bodies don't get enough, as much much water as we need. Um, We don't often pay much attention to the vital life source that water is. Um, I've been experiencing something that has me understanding and appreciating water, though. Anxiety has been an ongoing struggle in my life for several years, and so there are certain things I do, like taking medication, avoiding the news, um, limiting my exposure to triggering things, finding friends and families to friends or family members to talk to when my emotions become overwhelming. Um, but one area that I know I need to pay attention to—I sort of struggle with—is limiting my intake of coffee. Uh, Hand in hand with that, I am learning about myself that I must, I must start out every day before my morning cup of coffee by downing at least 16 ounces of water. I figured this out because I kept having this experience of feeling panic and fear take over my body any day at 11 a.m. if I had not done so. Um, If I have not had anything but coffee to drink at 11 a.m., my whole body starts to sort of freak out and figure out what is wrong. Uh, It's like clockwork. In fact, just last week, sitting back in one of those chairs, I knew before I looked down at my watch what time it was because I felt the panicky feeling going over my body, and I glanced at my watch on my way to the drinking fountain, and it was 10.56. Um, You would think that I would know better because I was just preaching this to Frank recently where I told him about a book I was reading that taught me that 73% of our brain is made of water, and studies have shown that our brain's ability to function starts to diminish before we even realize that we're thirsty. That comes from the book, The Sweet Spot, by Christine Carter, if anybody's interested in reading more. Um, So water is essential to sustaining our life, not just as a big goal of keeping us alive, but in fine-tuning us, allowing us to think clearly, allowing us to be at peace, and I think if you notice next time you're thirsty, and I mean really thirsty, and you take a drink, it is one of the most satisfying sensations of the whole human experience. An itch will go away if you ignore it, right? You could go days without eating. Hunger will eventually go away if you, um, if you fast for any period of time. But you cannot function without taking in water, And our good shepherd grants us rest by making sure that our ongoing thirst is satisfied, that our lives can be sustained, and that we can use our minds to engage and function in a peaceful way. So note takers, don't get too excited here. This is not point two in and of itself. I hope you'll forgive me for sort of slicing and reassembling the verses of this psalm to suit my outline. Um, But I like how this idea of having our thirst satisfied and quenched fits with the stanza of the next verse where it says, he restores my soul. Um, Now, the Hebrew word that is translated to the English restore, when amplified, means to return or to retreat to somewhere where you have been before. It's a familiar place, a place where you can feel safe, where you can belong. And the word soul is more richly translated in Hebrew as breath. It's like when you catch your breath after being winded, or it's like a cool breeze that refreshes you when you're hot. So when we hear that the Good Shepherd restores my soul, it means that God brings us back to a place of refreshment where we have already been. With water, as with breath, it's not like we can just stock up and then take a break. You have to keep breathing. You have to keep taking in water to stay alive. You need to breathe every minute of the day. You need to drink every day of your life. You must keep coming back to breath and coming back to your water source and to your good shepherd as the one to help lead you in your essential care. And God has not anointed us for needing this so often. God made us to have this constant minute-by-minute, day-by-day need. So God delights to keep bringing us back over and over to that place where we can catch our breath. So note-takers now, here's your cue. We can rest because the good shepherd is willing to keep bringing us back to our place of refreshment. It's good and comforting to know that the good shepherd makes time to um, bring us to familiar and restorative places to catch our breath, but sometimes our challenge in resting is worrying about the future and what is ahead. This is where we can find reassurance from our final verse today. Verse 3 says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Whereas the last verse was about being led into familiar places, in this verse, the Hebrew word that we've translated as lead means to guide into an unfamiliar place. I know that I'm not alone in having sleepless nights ahead of events that I'm anxious about because I don't know what to expect. Sometimes it's just the anticipation of something unfamiliar that deprives us of rest. Even though the paths that we have to go on might be new to us, the actual meaning for this Hebrew, of the Hebrew word for path in this instance is something that's like a revolving track, something that there's, it's visibly obvious when you look at it that other people have walked that way. So whatever situation we are facing... Even if it's a new path to us, the good shepherd has already guided other sheep along that way. These paths of righteousness, that word righteousness, it's not about piety. It's that they are well-worn. And by righteous, we know from the Hebrew word it means correct and right morally and legally. So these are paths that are tried and true where there is goodness and where there is justice. And the divine is willing to stake their name on it for his name's sake is if God is swearing on God's own reputation that this is a good way and you will have divine guidance as you move forward. So note takers, that is point three. We can rest because we know God's presence and God's reputation goes ahead of us. There's a verse from the New Testament that for me sort of parallels what this first part of Psalm 23 is talking about. Romans 8, 38, and 39 says this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For nothing can keep us from partaking in rest in the presence of our good shepherd, not fear or friction or famine or flies, not our ongoing neediness as humans, not the unknowns of our future. None of these things are greater than the care, the love, and the presence of our good shepherd. Let's pray together. God, thank you for being who you are so that it means that we can rest. And we forget how good it is, and we get busy and we neglect it, um, but woo us back to that place of rest in your presence and renew us and restore us. Would you just give us each the gift this week of seeing how you care for our needs when we allow ourselves to rest in your presence? Thank you that we're not in this alone. Thank you that we have the others in this room. Thank you that we have the others that have trod on this path ahead of us and and made the way clear as they've gone in your presence um, to unfamiliar places so that we can follow in those unfamiliar places too. So thank you, God. We love you and trust in you, and we want to rest in you. Amen.